This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you may not look at the numbers every day of COVID-19 cases down in the United States, and it's a good reason for that, right? You think, well, they're high. They continue to be high. More disturbing records being set. Daily case numbers are now hitting levels that haven't been seen since August. And in particular, hospitalizations in the Midwest part of the country are reaching new record levels. Let's get an update on this. Joining us now is Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. What are some of the hardest hit states right now? Well, actually, Simi, there are 37 states that are seeing uh, increase in cases of COVID-19 across the country. Midwest is getting particularly hard, but actually all of the country other than the South is getting hit hard. And medical experts are saying that they expected to see a bump after Labor Day, but now we are in a full-blown resurgence of COVID-19. There's only 13 states that are either holding their own or uh, seeing a slight drop in cases, but 37 are seeing an increase. On Saturday, 10 states broke records for new cases uh, since the pandemic began. And then on um, Sunday, six states broke records. So uh, as you said, hospitalizations are also up, and that's most concerning to the medical experts. It's not that people are testing positive, it's that they're testing positive and they're sick enough to end up in the hospital, Sunny. And what is happening in those hardest hit states then in terms of the hospitals? Uh, are they filled up or is it the case that they're not? Like what what is happening with the hospitals? Well, particularly in Wisconsin, they have really sounded the alarm because hospitals are filling up. Some of the other states are... Uh, the governors are telling people, you know, you've got to be more careful, go back to mask wearing, physical distancing, the weather's getting colder, people are getting, you know, sicker, people, more people are inside. And so, you know, they're urging people to take precautions. Uh, Wisconsin is particularly hard hit in a few other states in the Midwest. But, you know, when you go down south, you look at a state like Florida, which has over has had over 15,000 deaths. That governor has reopened everything in that state, everything from gyms to indoor restaurants, you know, to uh, movie theaters. So it's, you know, it's sort of the tale of two countries, but uh, definitely we are in a resurgence of this pandemic. But has anything changed in terms of the approach that governors are going to take towards this pandemic, even though there are these kind of record levels? Well, I mean, it depends on what state you're in. You know, we're, I'm in Maryland and the governor, the Republican governor here has been pretty strict and very slow in reopening. But it's, you know, it's state to state. There's never been any kind of national policy or national mask mandate, which Joe Biden and Kamala Harris believe there should be to try to once and for all get this virus under control on a nationwide level. Um, but in terms of what's being done, it's state by state still. And of course, you know, we have a president who is downplaying this virus. 
He says that it shouldn't be feared. He was, you know, in his words, in and out of the hospital, got the best treatment. And he's going back on the campaign trail tonight. He's got a big rally in an airport hangar in Sanford, Florida tonight at 7. And I understand he's got quite a few of those coming up in the next few days ahead. Yes, he's got rallies planned Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's as far out as I've seen his schedule. Um, So, I mean, obviously he's feeling a lot better, but it's important to note that he received experimental treatment that had to get emergency authorization from the FDA. And he got it very, very early on in his progression of the virus, which is not something the average American would get. And so he does feel great at this point, but or he says he feels great. Um, the doctor has cleared him to do these these rallies, but you know it'll be interesting to see how many people show up and whether or not they're wearing masks. All right, Jennifer, thank you. Thank you, Simmy. Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent. And yeah, it's great that the president's feeling well, but not every American would have access to the same kind of care that he got. Uh, And yeah, it will be interesting to see how many people are wearing masks at these rallies. Uh, Rallies set for several days this week. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about plastics in our ocean. Now, on October 7th, so about five days or so ago, the Canadian government had announced details about which single-use plastics are going to be covered by this national ban that is coming into effect next year, 2021. OceanWise was a key collaborator in the creation of the government's plastics ban policy. And Laura Hardman is the manager of the plastics program at OceanWise. And Laura had a chance to speak to our Nikki Reitmeyer. With your experience and your perspective on the problem with plastics ending up in the ocean, what was your reaction when you heard about, on October 7th, the Canadian government announcing details about banning single-use plastics? We were um, pleased. Essentially, we see the ban as a, a good, modest start to the long road ahead of us on the journey to being uh, zero plastic waste and to developing a circular economy. We have been expecting a ban for some time now. We welcome the fact that the proposal is based in science. So uh, it is looking at the problem of plastic in a systemic and holistic way. We know that it is negatively affecting the world around us. We can see and we have evidence that it is impacting more than 800 species. Drastic action needs to, needs to be taken. The ban, whilst only impacting a limited number of pervasive plastic, pervasive single-use plastic that's been identified as harmful, it is just the start. And we hope that businesses will continue to lead the way and to go above and beyond these initial proposals. On that note, what would you like businesses to know about the plastics that they may use in their daily operations and how that does affect ocean mammals and wildlife? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I'd like uh, businesses to know that we are here to support them as they move to a zero waste economy and as they look to reduce their plastic. Through our Plastics Wise initiatives, we are particularly working with restaurants in the food service sector to understand their plastic impacts and to help identify ways in which they can reduce it and move away from these uh, single use items. Now, whilst we understand that plastic is a a light, durable and cheap material that does provide benefits such as the reduction in in food waste, the problem is simply that, particularly in Canada, we're only recycling 9% of of what's collected. Nine? Did you say 9%? 9%, yes. Which 
Yeah, absolutely. And when you consider that, unfortunately, we hold the depressing accolade of being the of leading the developed world in per capita production of waste, we're looking at over 29,000 tonnes, uh, based on data from 2016, leaking into the ocean every year. So my, uh, my words to business organisations and even to individuals is that every decision you make, every choice has an impact on the oceans. And there are, most importantly, other options. Uh, We would call first and foremost to consider whether you really need to use that particular item of packaging. Uh, More often than not, you can simply say, no, it's not required. Take, for example, the the film plastic bags as an individual when you go and buy loose produce. Beyond that, there are other options. There are um, paper-based options. There are uh, biopolymer options, some really creative options we're seeing coming through locally here, um, such as uh, kelp-based plastic, which is very, very exciting. With one small caveat and one thing that I would like to see brought out further and more clearly in the government's approach to the integrated management of plastics is the inclusion of these alternative materials. So whilst it is very easy to say that alternative materials exist, and indeed there are innovations out there which could reduce global plastic pollution into the ocean by 80% uh, by 2040, it is not only about connecting and bringing those uh, innovations, those alternative materials to the marketplace at scale and most importantly at speed, It is also about not creating uh, unnecessary problems. So again, we're working with the industry to understand what does biopolymer mean for them, whether it can actually be effectively recycled in the system. Because unfortunately, as, uh, as an individual, as a business, you might think and look at the bottom of your, uh, your container, whether it is a, uh, an alternative material or a plastic and see it as compostable or see it as recyclable and put it in your compost or recycling bins. And unfortunately, because of the lack of clarity and the lack of um, harmonization nationally, it might be compostable in, in one jurisdiction and not in another. It might be recyclable in one jurisdiction and not in another. And unfortunately, if you put the wrong item in the wrong bin, for example, it could be as bad as polluting the waste stream and meaning that the whole um, the whole contaminated element gets burnt, for example, or landfill because it now cannot be recycled because of contamination. So one thing that the, um, the government's proposal did pull out was this need for harmonisation and standardisation. And we would like to see that theme be fleshed out further and have greater rigour put around it because for a market to be... Um, created for recycled materials, but, on, but also for people to be able to actively participate and to uh, ensure that there is good quality material available. We need to be very, very clear with everybody in the system what can and cannot be recycled uh, and what they need to do to in, in order to ensure that it is. Well, that's a great point because there's so much confusion around what can be recycled, what can't be recycled, what good beneficial alternatives are available. I think that people are generally feeling positive about this, but at the same time confused. Absolutely. And quite frankly, they should be feeling positive. All the uh, all the best research that's come out over the last year is pointing to the fact that if we act decisively now, we can support ocean recovery. We can support um, 
positive impacts on uh, things such as global climate resilience, we have the ability to do so. But as you quite rightly pointed out there, it, it is about empowering people uh, with the knowledge and the understanding of how they can have a positive impact, of how they can stop their plastic entering the ocean. And to be very clear, but you know, plastics has a place. It is a useful material. This is not about demonizing plastics, but it is ensuring that the plastics we do use, we value. We don't just toss away. So um, one of the things that I hope the ban uh, continues to stimulate is design for recyclability. Again, what was not specifically called out in the government's proposals and the plan for this integrated management of, of the, uh, the plastic system is that there are still a lot of um, additives of uh, different polymer types, uh, even different colorants in plastic uh, chemistry and plastic makeup that don't necessarily need to be there. If we go to the level where we're engaging and we're standardizing, and we're harmonizing the, um, the plastics that we're putting out into the world, it then becomes easier to get a higher quality of recycled material back. So it's not just about uh, clearer labeling, which is absolutely one of my pet peeves that we've already touched on, but it is also about uh, standardizing the, the additives, the other uh, chemical parts of plastic to ensure that that high quality material we get back can be used rather than downcycled. So for example, plastic PET bottles, the dream world is having them recycled and uh, having a completely circular loop back into plastic PET bottles. But if uh, clear bottles, for example, very easy to turn back into clear plastic that is usable and potentially food grade. However, if um, there is another color in there, for example, then you get the um, a cloudy plastic bottle, which brands often don't like to take because they uh, believe that the consumer, for example, would not be comfortable with a somewhat cloudy plastic bottle. The, I guess in that instance particularly, there is a very, very simple model, and that's a reuse model. We all know one of the top things we can do is carry around our reusable water bottle. So we're talking about plastics, and in particular the fact that the government is instituting a single-use plastics ban in 2021, but that doesn't mean everything is going to be covered by that. Our Nikki Reitmeyer has been speaking with Laura Hardman, manager of the plastics program at OceanWise, and she talks about how it's important to get clear directions on what can and can't be recycled. The concern for me and one of the things that I think we need to address fastest is clear public health, but also guidance to the uh, restaurant and food service sector on a COVID safe, smart approach to reuse models. Fundamentally, the best impact we can have is to reduce our consumption of single use. That means that it is not moving in and, and accepting a paper bag instead of a plastic bag. We know that um, from life cycle assessments, moving away from plastic to uh, paper-based materials is not always a better option when you look at the full environmental impacts. So for example, paper-based options can have plastic liners, for example, they can have additives in them. You are also looking at a world where the paper is perhaps grown in unsustainable sources or on arable land, when we have people in the world starving, you come against, you come up against um, the social argument that you are now growing packaging. So it's not about simply moving from one to the other, but 
it is about thinking, okay, do I need this single use item? Is there another option? And unfortunately, as a result of COVID, certain businesses have taken a back step in order to protect public health. Uh, We have seen more plastic bags. We are seeing, uh, again, another pet peeve, uh, single-use plastic masks um, or plastic-based safety masks. And whilst we must protect ourselves, it shouldn't come at the cost of protecting the planet. Mm -hmm. What would happen if there were no changes in policy made, if plastic use continued at the rate that it currently is? Looking at our oceans, what could be the future? afraid it's a it's it's quite a bleak outlook the future would be we would potentially have more plastic than fish in the ocean we would have potentially greater and greater growth in things like the great pacific garbage patch we would see species decline habitat destruction and we would essentially uh see more and more plastic entering our own food supply chain We've already seen it enter our, our food supply chain, but that would grow. Um, uh, another thing I should point out is plastic is already in our water supply too. It's, um, studies have linked it to not only tap bottled water, it's in the air we breathe. And what we don't know and the big concern is, is the impacts on, on human health. Even more broadly, the ocean is fundamental to life as we know it and an ocean health is fundamental to life as we know it the ocean is a huge carbon sink uh and it's uh, it's often cited that every other breath we take comes from the ocean now when you think about this in the context of global climate change the ocean plays a huge role in our resilience and in tackling the carbon Unfortunately, if we continue to damage this habitat by letting pollutants enter the ocean, we're going to negatively impact our ability to be able to um, to combat climate change. That's Laura Hardman, manager of the Plastics Program at OceanWise, speaking with our Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm sure some BC Liberals would like to turn back time a little bit, perhaps, to Saturday before all of this broke. And the momentum just didn't seem to be going their way because they haven't fully addressed this issue. Now, I want you to hear the comments so you have all of the information. And the reason why I shake my head about this story, a couple of ways, a couple of reasons why. But one of them is that this was a, a public event, this this roast. And the fact that somebody would make these jokes when it was public, that it was posted online, just I shake my head. Where was the common sense on this? It went completely out the window. So as we now know, BC Liberal MLA Jane Thornthwaite was uh, roasting Ralph Sultan, the longtime BC Liberal MLA who was retiring. And she decided to poke fun at, or she thought it was poking fun at, uh, the relationship that Ralph Sultan has with NDP MLA Bowen Ma. Have a listen to how she framed this. Bowen is, you know, very pretty lady, and uh, she knows that she's got it, and um, she knows how to get Ralph going. And my, this is my roast part for Ralph. Day after, he's telling us in caucus that we cannot accept what Bowen Ma says anymore because she's not saying the truth and she's taking credit for stuff that she shouldn't be taking credit for. So I go to an event and one of them was the Cap U Student Union Luncheon. And 
both Bo and Ma and Ralph were stuck on the couch together, very, very close together for <laughs> almost the entire time. We were supposed uh... to be, yes, Ralph, you remember that. We were supposed to be <laughs> networking and all this, but Bowen knows yeah, how no. to get you. She knows how to get you. <laughs> and no. she stood, there's these big couches, but Ralph would be sitting on one, uh, say the middle of the couch, and Bowen would be right up, right next to him, cuddling, 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 there, and, and Ralph would be enthralled with her. Just ew, right? Like just ew, the whole characterization of that there. Uh, and all those kind of chuckling, laughing voices you hear are other BC Liberals or, you know, Kevin Falcon, former BC uh, Liberal MLA and Cabinet Minister was there. Andrew Wilkinson, current BC Liberal leader, also on that call. And you can see it all in the video there. So obviously this did not go over well with a lot of people, as Vaughn was just telling us, on both sides of the political spectrum. Didn't matter. A lot of people saw this for what it was, just cringy, uncomfortable, and just plain wrong to ascribe those intentions to somebody who has had a long-time mentorship relationship with MLA Ralph Sultan. So Jane Thornthwaite, definitely on the defensive over this. Uh, first apology was a kind of like a non-apology, fell flat, like those comments. Tried again, second apology was definitely better. And then last night, she also spoke with Global News. I tweeted out uh, moments ago uh, an, un- unreserved, an unreserved apology, and um, I stick to that. Um, my uh, remarks at the roast, and it was a roast, we were supposed to be making fun of Ralph Saltan, that was the whole intent. Um, the intent was to, to be funny, and in retrospect, obviously, it fell flat, and I apologize for that. I have reached out to Bowen. I uh, did leave a message on her voicemail, she didn't pick up, but I also gave her an apology as well, and obviously I've got to do better. may have been a roast of Ralph Sultan, but you spent more time ascribing intentions and motives to Bowen Ma than you did to actually Ralph Sultan. Now, we are expected to hear from NDP MLA and running for re-election Bowen Ma at a media availability later today. Uh, Now, she did respond about this uh, very well, a lot of people thought, as Vaughn was also saying, on social media, but we will be hearing from her. The reason why this even really came out in the public uh, is because of Mo Amir, who is, of course, a CKNW commentator and podcaster, and he joins us now. Mo, thanks for being here. Hey, Simi. I have to say, my dad, Mo Sr., uh, says hello, and it's actually his birthday today. Well, you tell Mo Sr. that I said happy birthday from me. Absolutely. He's listening. Thank you so much. Okay. Happy birthday, Mo (laughs) Sr. Mo, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this this morning, because you kind of did kick things off by posting this video on Saturday night. How did it come to you, and what was said? So I had a long day on Saturday. I just gotten out of the shower. I was ready to binge on Netflix until I passed out, which may have been like 20 minutes tops. And my phone dinged and I got this email. And it's apparently from a woman who attended a virtual BC Liberal event and was very bothered by comments made about Bo and Ma. Uh, From my understanding, the event cost $100. And she told me in a later email that she recorded it for her husband to watch later. Now, she wants to be anonymous, but in the email, she said that she wanted my help. And she sent me a link to a 71-minute video file in Google Drive. 
It looked legit. I ran it through my antivirus, all good. And she told me to go to about 11 minutes in the video, which is Jane's section of uh, MLA Ralph Sultan's virtual roast. And so that's where the comments are, are from. It's about 11 minutes into the right. whole uh, roast. And here's the thing, you know, there, there may have been ulterior motives, but if there were, I certainly had no part in them. Uh, I'm taking this person for their word, whether it's through my podcast, through my work for CKNW or Vancouver is Awesome. I get emails from people all the time and I always right. treat them as legitimate. And regardless, the video is 100% legitimate. And within an hour of receiving it, I posted it online. I posted the clip online. And there was this temptation for me to editorialize it, to release it as an exclusive. I'm sure CKW might have preferred that route. But I wanted women to respond. I'm not going to tell a woman how to feel about this video. Right. They can tell me how they feel if they want. Um, and, and I did this, and I thought about it for a few minutes before I ended up posting it online. Because I thought about my cousin. She is in her early 20s. She, mar uh, she manages a research lab at a university here. I remember the day she was born. I witnessed her grow up. And, you know, she's so warm and friendly. And I thought about how her joyous spirit would be treated in the workplace. And I thought about women even in my own professional life. You know, I, I yeah. would not be your colleague at CKNW if it wasn't for Linda Steele and Jill Crop. And it would really upset me if someone mischaracterized why they were nice to me. So right. I didn't realize it was going to shake the election like it did, but my intent was just to broaden the conversation of what we thought about these comments, uh, which I think are probably more commonplace to all women than we give them credit for. And I think that's part of the problem here for the BC Liberals, right? Is that so many women, regardless of how they vote, recognized their own professional interactions being misconstrued in those. So when you posted them, how quickly did you start to get a response to this? And what has the response been like? <laughs> I would say uh, pretty much instantly. There were people online, uh, particularly from the NDP side, but just general people as well. Kyla Lee, who's a, a regular um, contributor to CKNW as a, as a, uh, here and there, you know, she posted something and, that, and it kind of blew up from there. So I think it was pretty much going all night into Sunday, and it continues as I, as I wake up today, it continues to be shared. So when you see the kind of, you know, what this has done, the reaction that has done and where it is now in the election campaign, does that surprise you? Or as soon as you heard it, did you think this is going to be a problem? When I heard the clip, did I think yes. it was going to be a problem? Yeah. I, I wasn't sure, to be honest. Um, I, I wasn't sure if people would kind of brush it off as, oh, you know, this is quote-unquote locker room talk or it's just a joke. Um, I honestly was not sure. And given now what is happening, that kind of reaction, do you think, oh, okay, because when I see the reaction to this, I think maybe times really have changed. Yeah, I, I think they have in a certain degree, certainly how, at how we look at things. And, and you know, I, I, again, I don't want to editorialize Jane's comments on that video, and, and, I, and I'm going to stick to that. What I do want to editorialize, though, is the BC Liberal response. Uh, and I have to say that their response to this controversy has been a disaster. And it's only going to engender more cynicism. I think people really want straight talk. Um, they want a conversation about this. And they want some uh, genuine authenticity. And it's very evident that there is a certain hubris within the BC Liberals right now that continues to go unchecked. We can look at Jane's 
initial response. Let's say you wake up on Sunday morning, you see this deluge of Twitter backlash, and the notion that Jane couldn't figure out that she hurt people. And that's not editorializing. That's the response that came up. There were women that were genuinely hurt by this. The fact that Jane's initial response was, you know, I made light of a soft spot that Ralph had for Bo and Ma, and I support women in politics, shows you her hubris in that her knee-jerk reaction was to be defensive and put herself over as an advocate for women. And it took 100 minutes after that first tweet, quote-unquote, non-apology of Jane's. Yeah. And she never used the word sorry. You know, she, she said she apologized. And I think that's actually very telling because the word apologize is a formal admission of wrongdoing. But when you say you're sorry, there's more of an emotional remorsefulness. And, you know, later that day, she's on Global News. She says, and I'm quoting here, she says, quote, the intent was to be funny. And in retrospect, obviously, it fell flat. And I apologize for that. Yeah, that's not what? an apology like, for saying what you said and doing what you were doing. Yeah, no no one's mad at you because you're unfunny, Jane. Like, the, the appropriate response would have been, listen, this was a roast. I was trying to be edgy and funny, but wow, did I have blinders on? And only now am I seeing how I've hurt people and how my words were hurtful. I'm so sorry to the women that I've hurt, and I'm sorry to Bo and Ma. So simple. That's literally all she had to say. Not rocket science. And. And, and and now you <laughs> and now we look at Andrew Wilkinson. You know he had a better apology on Twitter, but again he didn't use the word sorry. And where is he? You know That's he, the he could have done he could have done some press, even a video to post online. Yeah. Just the presence of being able to be played on TV and radio. Yeah, I mean this is brutal. And, and as as my friend Richard Zussman pointed out, this is very much an I am Linda moment. And just as that incident was full of hubris, I think if the BC Liberals have disappointing election results they're going to be chewing on this for a long time we will see mo listen thanks so much for joining us my pleasure thanks simmy enjoy your dad's birthday it's mo amir cknw commentator host of the van color podcast where these original comments were first seen as he tweeted them out on uh saturday night and that therein lies the problem right that you can apologize you can nip these things in the bud but when you don't they tend to take on a life of their own. And that is exactly what is happening right now. Where is Andrew Wilkinson with the, as Mo said, very, could have recorded something, could have put that out there yesterday. This thing would have been over and done with. Unfortunately, it is not. And I think what bothers a lot of people, women in particular, is you think, is this what they're saying? Like when we're not around, when we don't hear them publicly, when they're not on like out in front of the cameras, is this how they're talking when there's nobody else around? That's the uncomfortable part about this. There will be more to come. I know Mike Smith's going to cover this later today as well. This is Mornings with Simi. We were repeatedly asked to keep our Thanksgiving celebrations on the small side this year. Stick to six is what we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry over and over and over again. Now, that's a hardship for a lot of us who do enjoy that the warmth of having all your family and friends together at Thanksgiving. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about it in the days ahead. But I think most people realize that, yeah, it's important and we have to do this. That was in here in BC. Over in Ontario, though, they were not asked to stick to six They were asked to go even further. We're joined now by Global News Morning reporter Marianne Demain in Toronto this morning. Marianne, thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning. So what has Thanksgiving been like in Ontario? Well, it's definitely meant fewer place settings at the table, that's for sure. A definite break in tradition, especially for those who are used to having large gatherings this Thanksgiving weekend. 
Health officials here, both in the city as well as provincially, have been telling everyone in the days leading up to this weekend to stick only with the people in your household. So don't have anyone from your extended family or friends coming. If they don't live with you, they shouldn't be there. That's what they were recommending. Of course, we've had some pretty high numbers, record numbers on Friday, a little bit lower over the weekend. But of course, we are in a second wave and they're trying to reduce the spread of the virus. So it's been a much smaller celebration for many families who are following this recommendation, sticking only to the people under one roof. Wow. Okay. So that would have drastically, I would say, reduced the size of a lot of gatherings. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Much smaller turkeys, that's for sure. But they're hoping that this will lead to fewer cases in the coming days. The mayor of Toronto is saying that what we do this weekend will really indicate where the numbers are going in the next days and weeks ahead. We know that a lot of the people who have been getting infected have been people under the age of 40. And so they're really speaking to that population to try to stick to the people you live with. Don't go out and party. Don't go out and socialize or attend huge gatherings, which we would normally see this time of year. Um, Adding to all of this, too, is the fact that just before the long weekend, um, indoor dining was temporarily banned in all restaurants and COVID hotspots, which includes in Toronto. So that has also been a measure that we've also had to follow for families who would normally go out to dinner at their favorite restaurant. That's not happening this weekend either. Right. So watching over the last couple of weeks, those numbers, Marianne, go up and up and up. What has the reaction in the public been like? Have people realized that, oh, okay, we need to dial things back here? I think the message is starting to sink in with a lot of Ontarians. There have been a lot of people who have been following the rules from the start. People are wearing masks when they're going inside. People have been trying to limit their trips to only essential trips, to grocery stores, to work, uh, to the doctor's offices, those kinds of things. But as I was saying, in the younger population, those under 40 who are making up the majority of the infections, they're the ones who, according to health officials, are still socializing, meeting in big groups. Under provincial laws right now, we can still meet with up to 10 people indoors and up to 25 people outdoors. But even before the Thanksgiving long weekend, they were saying the risk is just not worth it, even if you are within those rules. And that's why they were really hammering home that message to stay within your household, especially to the younger population. So that's really where officials are going to be keeping an eye on the numbers in the days and weeks to come, whether those infections remain with that younger group or whether those infections are slowly going down within that population. So are the rules different uh, depending on where you live? Have there been kind of geographic lockdowns? Yes. So the COVID hotspots would include Toronto, uh, an area called Peel Region, which is outside of Toronto, and then, of course, Ottawa. Those are the three areas in Ontario where the numbers have just been so high. In the neighbouring cities, those rules are not the same. They've still been recommending that you stay with your household, but as far as the temporary ban on indoor dining, we've seen a temporary closure of gyms, casinos, conference centres, all of those went into place just a few days ago. That's only happening in Toronto, Peel Region and Ottawa. Elsewhere, mm-hmm. it's still open for now. So some areas have gone back to a stage two or a form of stage two anyway. And then while the numbers stay lower elsewhere, it's still business as usual for now. So what is the mask mandate like uh, in Ontario, Marianne? Like what are the rules about where and when you wear a mask? Right now, it's mandatory once you go inside and you notice it with all the signage everywhere. You can't go into any malls or stores or any establishments without your mask. Right now, though, it's not mandatory to wear it outside, although you do see a lot of people wearing the masks. As I'm watching a couple of people walking by me this morning, wearing their masks, just going about their daily walks or walking their dog. But you don't see that with everyone. You do see it, though, once you are inside. The question is, are people wearing the masks properly? Um, 
I don't know if you've noticed it where you are as well, but some people are only covering their mouths. And that's a lot of frustration yeah. for uh, some business owners where they even have signs saying, please cover your nose and your mouth. Because as we know, how this infection is spread is through the droplets from your nose and your mouth. So people are wearing their masks. The question is, is everyone wearing it properly? Uh, it could probably warrant another reminder from officials uh, to people on how to properly wear their mask to protect each other. Wow, okay, good luck, Marianne. Thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You know, lots of things got shut down during the COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot of them were providing very useful, very important services. For instance, there is a charity known as Two Paychecks Away, and it's a charity that has been helping the homeless in Vancouver by providing them with haircuts. A little, you have no idea how a little something like that can be so incredibly important for people. And they had been shut down because of the pandemic, but... They are being given a new lease on life, actually, uh, since they have been able to kind of reopen. But our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Alicia Osborne, who is the founder of Two Paychecks Away. I started Two Paychecks Away about three years ago after living in Gastown and wanting to um, just give back to the community. Uh, I was seeing some of the ways that the locals were being treated and it really bothered me. And so it started by offering weekly haircuts and over the last three years grew into uh, full charity, and uh, and now we have this partnership with Barber and Co., which is fantastic. And I'm able to do so much more by joining the two. Leah, let's talk about this new exciting partnership with Barber and Co. What is that partnership all about, and what will it allow you to do? So our gas town location shut down um, after COVID. And the founder of Barber & Co, Martin, uh, approached me and had an idea. He's always wanted a community-based barbershop. So partnering with Two Paychecks meant that I was able to have a brick and mortar again for the charity, as well as being able to run the barbershop simultaneously. So things that we get to do now is I have a, a safe, controlled, sanitized environment to be able to uh, cut hair for people on the downtown east side while the barbershop is also running. Uh, there's two rooms, which is great for uh, space and social distancing. We've set up with uh, shelters and SROs in the neighborhood uh, so they can book in their tenants. Uh, we're starting with Wednesdays from 12 to 5. And as we get busier, we'll start adding more days. And then with the barbershop side of it as well, I'm able to do more for the community by we are holding a drive every month. So this month we're taking clothing donations and anybody that brings in a clothing donation gets a Barber & Co. product of their choice. What kind of challenges has the pandemic presented for you guys? It sounds like you're just getting your feet back underneath you again, but over these past several months, what challenges have you faced? Oh, well, we had to stop uh, in March. We haven't been able to really do anything. Um, the numbers have been relatively low for downtown Eastsiders, so they've been keeping people out and the way that we were working before was we would go in and set up in the shelters uh, for a few hours on the weekends. And so not being able to do that was it was a struggle. Uh, a lot of other charities that we've worked with and 
uh, I've talked to had the same issues. So uh, everyone's just trying to get creative if it's something you can do online or uh, just trying to find different ways about it. It's kind of the way I think every business is feeling these days. You obviously see the impacts of this every single time you do a haircut, but for a person who previously has gone however long without having their haircut, when they see that transformation, what kind of impact does that have on a person? Our before and after pictures represent that perfectly, actually. Um, when we, for those who are willing, when we uh, take before and after photos, in every single after photo, they're smiling. And it's something just that simple, you know. Um, what we're doing is not trying to change lives. A haircut doesn't change a life, but it definitely changes a day. And it gives somebody a positive feeling. And it's very intimate. Touching somebody for half an hour to an hour and it just being about the person who's in the chair. It, it's really, it's a special moment. And it's great, great to see, great to see stories that go well. But it's great to see people in the neighborhood and just having, you know, their head up a little higher that day because they feel good and actually feel like themselves again. That's fantastic. For anyone who's looking for more information, where can they go to find out some more details? Uh, they can go to twopaychecksaway.org or we are also on uh, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And uh, feel free to stop by uh, the Barber & Co. in Gastown and bring us some warm clothing and I can tell you all about it. That's Nikki Reitmeyer speaking to our Alicia Osborne, uh, who is the founder of Two Paychecks Away. It is a charity that helps out Vancouver's homeless by providing them with haircuts. And they are finding a way to do that now, uh, even as we are still in the pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, we've got your good news story for you today. You know, if you've ever lost a piece of jewelry, like say a wedding ring or a ring or something like that, you despair because you think, well, that's it. It's gone. I'm never going to find out where that went. But every once in a while, things work out differently. Joining us now is Chris Turner from Ring Finders. Hi, Chris. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. H- how did you become a ring finder? Uh how did I become a ring finder? When I was 12 years old, I, I saw a metal detector in a magazine, asked my dad what it was. He told me I wanted one. He said, get a job. <laughs> so I got a job that summer and I bought a metal detector and I've been in love with it ever since. And so what do you use that for? Do people call you when they lose something? I actually started out just relic hunting, looking for old artifacts and coins. And it, uh, it transpired into a, a service that I believe is really needed. And it's a way to help. I found a, a way to help people by using my Melly Tetra find their lost jewelry. And uh, yes, it's a global directory now I created that has close to 500 members. We're helping people around the world find what they thought was lost forever. This is so amazing. So the reason why we've got you on today is because of the actor, John Cryer. Uh, he, of course, is in town. He he works on a local production here. And he was gone on, for a walk with on the seawall, and he lost his wedding ring, right? Yes. I, I got a phone call from John. had no idea who it was until we met, and I, I recognized him right away. What a great guy. Um, his chances were extremely slim, and... You know, when I saw him, I thought, oh, God, the pressure is on. Here we go. So when he showed me the area where he was walking on the seawall, there was probably about a 3% chance I would be able to find his ring because it was mostly concrete, and there was just a, a slice of grass separating the bike path and the walkway. 
And his only chance of me finding it would have been in the grass. And guess what? It was in the grass. That is unbelievable. But let's uh, back it up a little bit here. So he lost the ring. He tried to find it. It was dark out. And he's posting all of this online. So you did you also see the posts online? Or did people tell you, hey, John Cryer lost his ring? No, I didn't. I didn't hear of it. Uh, he found me and contacted the ring finders. So uh, that's how I first heard of it. And it was like any other search. I, I get details from people, find out a bit about the search and we arranged to meet the next morning, and uh, that's when we started the search. So you show up there, and you look around, and did you have to say to him, John, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do this? Absolutely. I'm a realist. I mean, when I looked at the situation, I, I it's not like I, I wouldn't be able to do it, but my, my area was so small. It was a three, three feet across slice of grass that went up the middle of the pathway. So, again, the chances of it falling there were, were so unlikely, but... It's it's uh it's what I do. I give people closure. I went in there and I will close off the only area I could search and that was the grass. And he was walking close to the water's edge. So when he was walking he pulled his hand out of his pocket, his ring must have got caught and his hands were cold, his ring came off. He heard the ping, but he didn't realize it for a few steps and then he looked down and he saw his ring was gone. He he was there for I'm not sure how long, but he was soaking wet looking and searching oh. in the night. He went back in the morning the next morning couldn't find it. They can got online. So you can, you can tell what this means to people. It's, it's a circle of love. It's, it's got a yeah. story and every ring I've ever found has an amazing story attached to it. And I get to continue if I can find them. Right. And I know that it did mean so much to him because he's been married to his wife for more than 10 years. They're uh, in different cities right now because, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the you know quarantining rules. So he's here filming. She's back in Los Angeles. And so I guess he was feeling really emotional about this ring. What was it like in that moment that you found it, Chris? Well, it's on my YouTube channel, uh, The Ring Finders. You can see the video. It was great. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I get, I get as excited as a person I find it for. I don't show it, but I'm, I'm just as excited. And uh, he, was, he was very happy. And it's a bit of a disbelief. Most people can't believe it. Most times people would go, oh, my God, I can't believe you found it. And uh, this one, I, I really felt the same way. It was like, I yeah. can't believe I found this. It was the gods were in his corner for sure. Have you had moments like that before, though, where you have found things that people thought were gone for sure? I've recovered over 600 lost rings back to people here in Vancouver. Wow. Over three, 330 on my new directory. Um, but yes, it's it's a wonderful feeling. And like I say, every ring has this beautiful story attached to it. And people deserve a second chance to get it back. And thank you so much for finding it interesting enough to do a story because I know there's a lot of people out there who are listening and are going to say, geez, my mom lost her ring 20 years ago in our backyard. I can find that. Yeah. Well, how can people get a hold of you then if they're thinking that? Uh, www.theringfinders.com. It's, right. a, it's a global directory with 22 countries, over close to 500 members now. And we've returned over 7,200 lost rings back to their, their owners. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for telling your story this morning. Thank you, Sydney. Have a great day. You too. That is Chris Turner from The Ring Finders. As you heard him say, it's theringfinders.com. If you've lost a ring, I know, who knew there was somebody you could actually call if you've lost a ring? The actor John Cryer did, and look what happened. It was some kind of miraculous recovery of that ring that he lost on the Stanley Park seawall a couple of days ago. So there you go. Hope for you too if you have lost an important memento like a ring, wedding ring, whatever the case, theringfinders.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
I was a kid growing up in Metro Vancouver, there was only one person on TV who looked like me and everyone in my family, in my house, everyone watched her. She has had a huge impact on the broadcasting industry. And now after more than four decades, Shushma Dat has decided to retire. The Spice Radio founder and president joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Congratulations on making this big decision. Well, I I thought, you know, the multicultural channel um, that was started in 1979, um, you know, I had done enough for that. So might as well, you know, hang my uh, hat on that. Oh, you can hang your hat on that. I mean, look at how much <laughs> has changed from 1979 to today. Do you yes. see yourself as being somewhat responsible for that? Because I do. <laughs> That's very kind of you, Simi, to say that. Um, you know, it, it is. It's something that I had to do. Uh, there was nothing else for me to do, and to uh, to make a living. You know, you you find a job that uh, fits your personality or or the way you are, right? So I did it, and I did it with a lot of passion. You said it was the BBC that kind of started you on the path as a journalist and a broadcaster. When you started at the BBC, did you think, oh, I, I love doing this? Oh, I was 10 years old, Simi, when I first went into a radio station in Kenya. And I found that to be a, a, a magical trip because I was supposed to say a line and I, I fumbled. But when it went on air, there was no fumble. And I thought to myself, what a magical world. You can make mistakes and then erase them. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> so when I uh, when I was uh, at at the BBC, I had some fantastic mentors who uh, trained me, and uh, and yes, I I thought to myself, this is the line that that is for me. I I should be a broadcaster, and I would love to be. So when I came to Canada, um, Van Brookham, uh, owner of CJVB, which is fourteen seventy now owned by. Uh, Fairchild, I was starting the first multicultural radio station. And I got a job with him and eternally grateful to him for that. And after that, it just, I mean, that was the only show around where anybody could see that different kind of programming, right? People spoke another language who looked different. Was it immediately successful? Did you realize that this, you'd really tapped into something? Our community, as you know, I don't think we were born then when I came here. Um, it was a small community, um, and and I think I knew that I was the only one producing programming for them. Um, I didn't think it was going to be that successful, but when I left CJVB, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I started Rim Jim in '87, uh, and Rim Jim was the the radio station that is still running. And I at that point I thought to myself, yes, this could be something for the community, especially the older generation, to be able to listen to at home at any time. So 24-7, their own music, their own songs, religious and all that. How important is it, do you think, for people to be able to hear that? Something in their native language, just every once in a while to know that that is there to provide them with some entertainment, some information. You know, there is an advantage to that and there is a disadvantage to that. The advantage is that you feel that you're not in a in a uh, alien or foreign land, mm-hmm. that you have your own language that you can hear. The disadvantage is that you cannot just stay in that and not learn other languages too. 
So when we, or through our television and radio programming, that was something that I was always very cognizant of the fact that we have left our homeland and we've made this country our home. So we've got to be a part of this country. And that is most important rather than just fighting battles of, of the country that we've left. And do you think that is something that holds today as well? That's just a good good reminder for everybody. It, it is. A, it's a reminder. It, it doesn't happen all the time. You know. You know. I have been. Um, I've been uh, um, target for many people because I say to them, "We've got to fight the battles here, not the battles in India." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got to. We've got to be diligent about that. And the younger generation, I think, is is getting it. The older generation, I think, feels a little homesick because when they talk about back home, they are there, mm-hmm. you know. But I think every everybody feels that, right? No matter where they yeah. come from, everybody feels That's a little true. bit of that. That is very true, yes. So what is next for you? I can't imagine that you're just going to do nothing. No, I still am doing a program called Women in Focus. And Simi, you know, I've been requesting you to be uh, <laughs> focused in that. Whenever way. you want, whenever you want. <laughs> we've, done, we've done over 950 dynamic South Asian women. And every woman has a beautiful story. Um, and uh, we've interviewed uh, women who are, you know, homemakers, women who are presidents of companies. Uh, so that program will continue. I think next September, it will be the 1,000th program. Wow, that's mm. amazing. Well, congratulations, how- and we wish you all the best. And whatever you need, you know where to find me. All right, now I know. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Congratulations. That is Shushma Dat. She's the president and founder of Spice Radio. I can't even emphasize to you how huge she was in my growing up that in my house, it was a big deal to watch her show. Uh, And she is now retiring, sort of, you heard her say she's still going to do a few things, but mostly retiring after more than 40 years in the business.